unveiling the secrets A-list copywriters use to make themselves and their clients millions. This is the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. All right, welcome back to the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. David, how are you doing today? Nathan, I'm good. How are you? I'm good, and just a warning for you and for the listeners as we get started. We've had thunderstorms all morning, and my mic usually does a good job of not picking up background noises, but I've been catching a a little bit of thunder now and then, so a little bit of a warning, but we'll try and work through it if it ends up happening. Well, thunder would actually be great for the in-real-life nature of this segment, but I hope it doesn't affect us too much. Okay. I'll see if I can cue it when we get to that part of the podcast. And Cue the thunder! Right. You've already piqued my interest, so what are we going to be talking about today? Okay. Old Master Series. Our old master today begins a chapter of one of his books with this question. How do you cope when readers do not believe what you have written? And he answers it. You plug the gaps where the belief leaks out. It sounds like a great plan, but it leads to two more questions. One, what are those gaps? And two, how do you plug them? Now, what's interesting, especially about this old master, is he's not a copywriter, but he is a very successful writer. And for my money, the best teacher of writing fiction you can find anywhere. And more interesting the gaps where the belief leaks out for fiction writers are, for the most part, the same ones that cause problems for copywriters. And so are the fixes to plug those gaps. I've tweaked his ideas ever so slightly to make them a perfect fit for copywriters. Our old master was Dwight Swain. Not Dwight D. Eisenhower, but Dwight Swain. He passed away 30 years. 30 years ago, and I'll tell you more about him and his ideas in a minute. But first, here's something that never gets old. Copy is powerful. You're responsible for how you use what you hear in this podcast, and most of the time, common sense is all you need. But if you make extreme claims, and or if you're writing copy for offers in highly regulated industries like health, finance, and business opportunity, You may want to get a legal review after you write and before you start using your copy. My larger clients do this all the time. All right. So today we're going to talk about five of the seven mistakes Dwight Swain identifies in the chapter, The Dynamics of Disbelief, from his book, Creating Characters, How to Build Story People. Now, the bad news is you can't get one of these. There's only one for sale as far as I can see. The good news is the book is available on Kindle. So you can get the book if you want. It's a great book. His main point in the chapter, remember, he's writing to freelance novelists and article writers and screenwriters and mostly not copywriters, but his main point is, if you've done everything else right, if your editor doesn't believe the story could have actually happened, the editor knows readers won't either, and therefore the editor won't buy your story. 
And, you know, while I was working on this, I found out from a friend, Kevin Rogers, about a new, actually not a new, series on Netflix on, on Amazon Prime that's been around for about eight years. I started watching it last night. It's great. It's called Bosch. It's about this hard-boiled detective in L.A. And one thing I noticed is Jerry Connolly is an incredible writer, an incredible fiction writer. And it was based on his books. And he wrote the screen teleplay, half of it for the first episode. It was so believable. It seemed, and I wasn't thinking this is believable. We you know what I was thinking? This is so real. And <clears throat> when you get that reaction, that means that the writers and the, when it's on the screen, the actors, the directors have done these things right. So here's the thing to keep in mind. Good stories are believable, even if in fiction they never really happened. And there's a phrase that's used, the suspension of disbelief, that describes the enjoyable experience we have when we're watching something on the screen that we know is not actually true, but it's done well enough so we can pretend it is. We suspend our disbelief. Okay, in copy, the same thing applies, but with a twist. We're not telling a story strictly for entertainment, at least not in direct response copywriting done right. We're making a claim, and we want to make it believable enough so that people will take the action we ask them to take. At least some of those people, enough of those people to make our promos highly profitable. So Dwight Swain was one heck of a writer. He wrote Pulp Fiction, he wrote magazine articles, screenplays, novels, and a lot of other things besides some great books to help other writers. Let's get into his mistakes for fiction writers and how to fix them and see if we can transform each one of them into some valuable tips for copywriters. You, you, did this bring up any thoughts before I get into the down and dirty, Nathan? Just the, I think, underappreciated connection between good copy and good storytelling. This is something that you've brought up multiple times throughout the show. I remember a book that really upped my game that you recommended, Wired for Story. But yeah, I, I don't think enough copywriters appreciate how much there is to learn about good copy from good storytellers. Yeah, thanks for saying that because one of the things is People think it's an all or nothing thing. It's like zero or 100. So if you're going to get into stories, you need to learn the hero's journey and you need to study all of Thomas Donnelly's works. And Tom's a great guy, but he's writing for screenwriters. Stories and copy are different. It's Copy is not primarily a story medium. It's a persuasion medium, but we do our persuasion through stories. Anyway, thanks for saying that. All right, let's jump into the mistakes. Mistake number one, you fall out of viewpoint. So viewpoint. In fiction, Swain says, you need to know your character as a person and write from their viewpoint. In his book, he writes, viewpoint goes beyond the physical, however. It isn't just the point or person we're seeing the story from. It's how we're seeing it. The essence of how lies in the character's beliefs, attitudes, and prejudices, the emotion that drives him, the way he reacts to what happens, the stimuli that impinge upon him. That's certainly true in fiction. You don't expect the gargantuan Jack Reacher 
in a coffee shop struggling with Wordle on his cell phone or discussing the fine points of Renaissance philosophy. The character Jack Reacher is a man of action who has a strong belief in justice, sometimes delivered with his bare hands. Wordle can wait. Okay, but what about copy? Outside of Jay Peterman, we don't see a whole lot of action-adventure indirect response copy, yet the same principles apply. The first positive example that came to mind for me was Agora Financial. They know their prospect like the back of their hands. They assume his gender is male, that he's in his 60s, a white man, conservative, and they know his attitudes and beliefs to a T. So they write to that person. And if they have a hero or a martyr in their copy, that person will be someone that their audience, their specific prospect can relate to, cheer for, sympathize with, or hate along with them. Of course, not everyone is writing copy for Agora's audience, and neither is everyone selling for financial advisory newsletters and information services. And it always impressed me that while some of the copywriters at Agora match the attitudes and values of their prospect, just as many didn't. But it didn't matter. They didn't confuse their own personal agenda with the prospects. It was an example of remarkable self-discipline and copywriting savvy. The key takeaway from this mistake, which you don't want to make, you know, failing to write from the correct viewpoint, and the way to keep from making it is to get to know your prospect, their view of life, what's top of mind for them, what they care about, what they believe in, what they hate, what they avoid at all costs. Get to know them and crystallize that knowledge into one avatar or target customer as a whole person. Figure out not only how do they see the world, hear it, smell it, and taste it and feel about it, but also what are the attitudes and beliefs that form their viewpoints and rule their decisions? I think the key takeaway for me from that is just like a, a good TV show, you need a believable character, a, a believable lead for someone to kind of grasp onto and identify with. Same thing with copywriting. You need a believable definable character for the person reading it to grasp onto and to kind of go through the journey with and, and really believe in. And a lot of times I think the struggle with that is trying to make our core audience, our core character so broad that they lose the believability. Yeah. You know, I, I think a, a really good contrast would be Bank advertising compared to direct response advertising. I mean, you're at maybe not so much today, but in the past, banks would a bank ad. You know, it, it would it would look like a tombstone at a graveyard, which is, and they were called tombstone ads, and they would say something like one, two, three, bank, using abstractions to create positive affinity in you, or something really bland and meaningless and direct response copy is just as you described it nathan so always know where you stand on that spectrum and you know i guess if you can get a good gig writing tombstone ads for a bank who am i to judge but <laughs> it's not what we're about 
All right. Um, mistake number two, you fail to do enough research. Now, you probably have heard that once or twice or maybe a thousand times on this podcast before, but this is a little different than the type of research we usually talk about, which is usually important as well. The normal type of research includes things like looking at the competition, figuring out the advantages for your product over other ones, or finding out what customer desires and complaints are, or getting deep knowledge of product features so you can come up with great benefits and bullet points. Yeah, those are important. But Swain is talking about something a little different here. In fiction, a reader who starts to fall out of the suspension of disbelief might do so when thoughts like these show up in their mind. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So why should I even bother to read this? As Swain says, when you don't know the difference between a rifle and a shotgun or organdy and tool, it's a mark against you. I didn't know the difference between organdy and tool, by the way. I didn't even know how to pronounce tool, so I looked it up. And in case you didn't know, and if you're not into sewing or design, organdy and tool are two types of fabric. Anyway, how does all this fit into copywriting? It boils down to the jargon of the nitty gritty. The specialized words people say, the specialized knowledge they have. And when you have it and say it yourself, it makes you seem like you're one of them. Or as I'm reading it, I think, hey, he's one of us. She's one of us. Okay. One of my best mentoring clients had a line in one of his VSLs. It was, it was pitch perfect, describing a particular physical symptom that a lot of people experience and describing it in everyday language. I asked him about it and he told me he found it in a forum about the disease. That's good. I mean, he seemed like he was a little, you know, embarrassed that he hadn't come up with it himself, but no, he did the right research. That's what he should be proud of. Not embarrassed about. Okay. So use the same conversational language your prospect uses. That really gets people to believe you. So, one of my favorite authors, Lee Child, and he writes the Jack, is it Jack Reacher that he writes? Yeah, he does. Okay, so I'm going to compare Lee Child to one of the good friends of the podcast, Mike Morgan. Lee Child is, does definitely not hold the same positions, especially when it comes to the Second Amendment that his main character does. And occasionally, it I lose believability in some of the stuff because occasionally I can tell that Lee Child is putting his own beliefs and using the character as a way to deliver those beliefs, and it breaks the it it breaks the suspension of disbelief. It breaks the believability of the character when I'm like, that is not so. A character like Jack Reacher would not have this opinion. This doesn't make sense, but I can tell that this is Lee Child's opinion versus Mike Morgan. I know Mike Morgan's opinions on certain things. And then I read his writing and I'm like, Mike Morgan is totally willing to sacrifice putting his own opinion in there in order to make sure that the reader finds what he's writing believable. And he puts the reader first. And I have never, when I've gone through Mike Morgan's stuff, I have never felt, especially knowing him and knowing some of his opinions about things, I've never felt that disconnect. I always feel like he really is writing from the point of view of his reader. And uh, Lee Child, 
nails it 99% of the time, but on that one occasion where I'm like, that's Lee Child's opinion, that's not Jack Reacher's opinion, it totally throws me out of the book. So just a tiny, just getting it wrong a fraction of the time can plant that red flag in your reader's mind and kind of leave them with a little bit of distrust. So it's, it's a subtle thing, but Mike is one of the guys that does it brilliantly, better than any copywriter I know. Yeah, he does. He's, and, you know, I think part of that for him is clarity. He knows where he stands. He knows where his reader stands. He knows what all the differences are. And he's able to, you know, negotiate through that. And good for him. I, I agree with you. He's, he's tremendous in that way. Mm-hmm. All right. Mistake number three. You're telling instead of showing. Now, you know, we hear this all the time. Show, don't tell. It's good advice. But what does it mean? <laughs> I love this. One. This applies when I claim I can levitate myself, rise from my chair, and move through my air. Through, rise from my chair and move through the air this way and that. If I tell you, you may nod politely, but you're hardly likely to believe me. But if I demonstrate by <clears throat> actually performing the feed, then you're forced to accept the truth of my statement. Well, that's clear enough. His point is demonstrate what you can claim. Offer concrete proof. The same thing is very important in copy. If you say your gizmo works 40% faster than all competitive gizmos, but you don't show me how, with a video, with a convincing story, with a credible study, with a logical explanation, then your claim of 40% faster is much less likely to be believed. There's another reason to show, whether with words or pictures or video. Abstract words and an empty claim is a perfect example of abstract words. Register in a part of the brain that is mostly disconnected from emotion. But images, whether they are described with words or presented as pictures or video, touch a part of the brain that is more emotional. So when you're showing, you're doing a better job of engaging your prospect. Think about it in terms of everyday life. Let's say your pal Jimmy has been sick, but the rumor is that he's feeling better. If you say, I heard he's feeling better, that's one thing. But if you just visited with him and you can say, I saw Jimmy the other day and he's feeling a lot better, it's just more believable. Why? Because whether it was his intention or not, when you visited with him, Jimmy showed you he was feeling better. Screenwriting forces you to show everything. I'm not suggesting that you start writing screenplays to become a better copywriter. Not a bad idea, but I'm not suggesting it. But next time you're watching a movie or TV show, take a moment to notice how the actors and director and the writer who wrote the teleplay or a screenplay are so skillful at showing you what they want to get across and how it stays with you. I think we're more wired to believe what we see than what we hear or read about. So showing rather than telling is simply taking advantage of that wiring. I think also the way that we work, if someone tells us something, it's their idea and they're trying to force it on us. But when, sh- when somebody shows us something, 
It's our idea. We embody it. It becomes something that we own. So the show versus telling, the demonstrating versus claiming, a lot of times it's just about, is it somebody else's idea that they're trying to force on me? Or is it an idea that because of the evidence or the story presented, the the vision presented, I took this and it's my idea. And I'm always more willing to accept an idea that I came to a truth that I came to over what somebody is just trying to force upon me. I really like that. I never thought of it that way, but I think you're right. And it's another reason to show rather than tell so that the reader can come to their own conclusion. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. All right. Mistake number four, gaps between motivation and reaction. So this one is pretty simple, but unless you already think like a novelist or a screenwriter, it may take a little getting used to. It took me a while when I first heard about it. Here's what you need to know. Real life often occurs like a series of random events, some excitement, some boredom. Often it's hard to see the connection between one thing and another. Shit just happens. Not so in good fiction. The great film producer Alfred Hitchcock said, what is drama but life with the dull bits caught out? Those dull bits are the random events that don't make for an exciting, compelling story. We'll get how this fits into copy in a minute. But first, let's look at how this plays out in fiction. A good dramatic story, in some ways, is a chain of cause and effect, cause and effect, carefully woven together by the storyteller. And here's how Swain describes it. If the hero slaps the heroine and she gives no indication of it, or if a character touches a hot stove but doesn't respond by jerking back, then your story people aren't behaving realistically. Increasingly, readers have difficulty believing them. See, even though good fiction isn't real life, the way a surveillance camera would record it. Good fiction does need to be realistic in the exciting bits that it does portray. Now, this next part is going to be a little more technical than usual, but it's one of the most important things about writing I've ever seen. It's so important that I have a detailed infographic I made it myself taped to the wall just to the right edge of my computer screen. So stay with me. This part comes from one of Swain's other books, Techniques of the Selling Writer. But it's the same thing he's talking about here, and he even refers to that other book in the one we're pulling the ideas from for today's podcast. So here's this technical description I've been talking about from his book, Creating Characters. A scene, a unit of conflict, is made up of a continuous series of these stimulus response or motivation reaction units. It's what gives your readers the feeling that they're living through the experience. Let me do that again. That's so powerful because that's the secret to really deep engagement where your prospects feel like they were there. You know, Nathan, do you remember that Bill Bonner letter about when you go to the gas station, the credit card's working. And I mean, you that was so well written, you felt like you were there. Okay, here, here's what 
this. A scene, a unit of conflict, is made up of a continuous series of these stimulus response or motivation reaction units. It gives the readers the feeling that they're living through the experience. Basically, like Isaac Newton said, every action causes a reaction. Cause and effect, cause and effect. But now we're talking about the same dynamic in human experience rather than marbles or models of a solar system in a lab experiment. Here's the human side of it. When someone slaps you in the face, you wince or bare your teeth or hit back. When you touch a hot stove, you howl and you pull your hand back. In other words, an action, a motivation, a stimulus occurs and you have a specific reaction to it. Pretty simple. In copy, what this means is there's got to be a motivation shown and spelled out that would make your prospect look for and want a solution to solve the main problem that your product solves. That's a mouthful. I can't think of a simpler way to say it without taking out the important part. So I'll just say it again. There's got to be a motivation shown and spelled out motivation that would make your prospect look for and want a solution to solve the main problem that your product solves. Okay. So let's say your problem is itchy knuckles. I don't know. I just made that up. The narrative of your VSL happened to be enjoying a beautiful spring day in late June. And he thought, oh, wow, wouldn't it be cool if they made a cream specifically for relieving the itch of itchy knuckles? Nah, too much out of the blue. That wouldn't fly. Sales would be in the low zeros. Okay, let's add a motivation, a stimulus. For example, suppose every time the narrator of your VSL used to shake hands with someone at a networking event, his knuckles would flare up with unbearable itchiness and he started have to scratching, had to start scratching hard and fast. Now that's a problem. Knuckle relief to the rescue. Okay, when a story doesn't make sense or a sales letter doesn't make sense, it's because the actions people take weren't preceded by a believable motivation. Pay attention to this one. It's a little more complicated to fix than most mistakes you want to avoid, but it's vitally important. I just want to add this podcast is not sponsored by Knuckle Relief Knuckle Cream. No, it's not. In fact, I can't, I have never used that product. I can't recommend it at all. No. Okay. Mistake number five is not planting. This one's pretty easy to understand. Let's start with a quote from the great Russian writer Anton Pavlovich Chekhov, who wrote in his book of advice for writers If you say in the first chapter that there's a rifle hanging up, there's your Second Amendment stuff. If you say in your first chapter that there's a rifle hanging on the wall, in the second or third chapter, it absolutely must go off. If it's not going to be fired, it shouldn't be hanging there. Okay, so with the checkoff example, planting is putting the rifle on the wall in the first chapter. But what Swain is talking about is even more deadly to your story and to your copy. It's the opposite. It's not planting. With the checkoff example, not planting would be having the gun come out of nowhere and get fired in chapter two or three because you didn't plant it in chapter one. And Swain says you should not just plant physical objects early on. 
you should also plant character traits. Let the character show the reader who they are early on. In copy, this is vitally important, but again, slightly different way. Let's say you've got a skilled fisherman who's going to vouch for your breakthrough new fishing lure. You can't just pop him into the copy all of a sudden without any planning ahead of time and expect his words to land with any weight. In other words, don't do this. Yes, David, this is the most revolutionary fishing lure I've ever seen, said Bob, a noted expert on fishing. What you want to do instead is plant Bob in the copy a little earlier. Now, we're just having fun here, but this makes the point. I knew I was on to something, but I wanted someone with a lot more experience than me to take a look. In the woods, near the streams where the best fish were to be found, was a legendary angler named Bob. At the bait store, people would say his name in hushed tones. I got in my 4x4 and hit the winding dirt roads, hoping I could find Bob. After a few hours of searching, I did. I figured correctly that if anyone could tell me if I'd come up with something good, it would be Bob. It took some talking to even get him to agree to look at my lure. But once he did, his eyes really lit up. That was because he could immediately see the spin, colors, and texture would attract fish who would laugh at other lures. Yes, David, you really got something here, Bob told me. This is the most revolutionary fishing lure I've ever seen. Okay, see how planning made a huge difference? So, before we wrap up, I want to let you know I left out two of Dwight Swain's believability mistakes because they might not apply to copywriting enough of the time. One is covering distasteful topics. He says not to do that in fiction, but frankly, we do that and quite profitably often in copywriting. And second, having non-likable characters, which is just too much of a rabbit trail to go down for us today. Before I recap, you want to say anything about planting or anything? Yeah. So I think of this as pre-framing. If you're going to give people information that you want to take serious, don't just give them the information. Give them the way that they're supposed to view the information first. And that way it has the impact that you want it to have. So the information was, yeah, this is an amazing lure, but that doesn't mean anything unless I know what the context is by delivering this story of this legendary fisherman who's at this fishing spot where all the best fish are at and everybody knows that this guy's the guy to go to. You give me the frame that I'm supposed to look at the information through first. And then when you deliver the information, it has the impact that you want it to have. So it's so vital. It's so important to take that extra in copy. We're always editing and, and deleting what doesn't need to be there, but pre-framing the information so that when it hits, they view it the way we want them to view it is so important. Yeah, that's good. I hadn't thought of that. But you're absolutely right. I guess I just assumed it or I missed it. But yeah, I mean, it's not planning is not enough for the purpose of copywriting. You've got to set the frame so that it's really going to work in your favor. Yeah, that's really good. Thank you. All right, let's recap the five mistakes to avoid. Mistake number one, you fall out of viewpoint. Mistake number two, you fail to do enough research. Mistake number three, you're telling rather than showing. Mistake number four, 
gaps between motivation and reaction. And mistake number five, not planting. And here's the book again, Creating Characters by Dwight Swain. Good luck finding one with a cover like this. But you can get a hard copy or an Audible or a Kindle on Amazon. we got a link below to the Kindle, and you can click around if you want another format. Nice. David, thanks again for bringing these. These are always my favorite, the Old Masters series, but especially when we dive into looking at copy looking at copy from a different lens, kind of pre-framing it from a different point of view and getting a, a wider understanding of what makes this stuff work. I think that a lot of times as business owners and copywriters, we just stick to how to write copy, how to do marketing, books that are strictly for what we're trying to do. But like I mentioned earlier, some of the books that you, Orphan X, you had me read, Lee Child, You Turned Me On To Him, the Wired For Story books. I've gotten more out of reading some of these non-copy, non-marketing, non-business books. I've gotten some of the best business lessons by going outside. So I love it when you bring these non-business books and non-copywriting books and pull these gems out of them. It's always a, it's always a delightful experience for me. Yeah, th thanks for saying that. You know, my point of view, and I, I didn't exactly do it this way because I'm always, I'm so curious and interested in different things, so, you know, but from the pure copywriter, the you know, optimal way to do this is you, you want to build a, a core basis, a, a, a structured, thorough, systematic, doesn't have to be perfect, but it, it ought to be a substantial basis of copywriting knowledge because it's, it's such a different way of looking at things than anything else except sales and legal argumentation a little bit. It's, but it's really, it's really unique. Once you have that, there are a lot of things you can do to inform it and make it better. But, you know, I, I've seen a couple of, it's amazing what, what the um, institutional brand advertising industry can do. They, they find new heights of stupidity. They have people in insurance talking about how people they're in the commercial talking about how people like a story. So let's make an insurance commercial with the story in it. I mean, it's, it's like, do you, do you remember Jeffrey Tubin and why he got kicked off CNN? <laughs> okay. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah. Thanks for what you said. Now the people are going to go, the listeners are going to hit Google and <laughs> <laughs> find some stuff they You're probably don't be, want to see well that's see that's something that's disgusting so there you go <laughs> all right david thanks again for putting this together listeners out there if you enjoyed this episode make sure that you head over to copywriterspodcast.com and check out more episodes there like subscribe give us a review on your favorite podcasting app and until next time we will catch you later catch you later Before we go, a quick question. Would you like to have me as a guest on your podcast? Let me give you an easy way to contact me about that. We've put up a form on garfinkelmedia.com, and it won't take much more than a minute to fill it out. So if you'd like to have me on your show, just go to garfinkelmedia.com and fill out the form. That's garfinkelmedia.com. Thanks, and see you next time on the Copywriters Podcast. This is the Copy and Funnels Podcast Network.